Uh, my name is Brian Betts. I'm one of the pastors on staff here. And today we're going to talk about Acts 15. And as I was working through uh, the text this week, I had a memory come from way back here in the recesses of my mind that I hadn't thought about in a long time. When I was a senior in high school in my government class, uh, I, got, I happened to be in the class that also got an opportunity to do like a model UN thing. So a bunch of local high schools in Southern California got together and uh, there was a group out of USC that ran it, their professor and, and their... Um, uh, and that class was part of it. And USC got to be America. Of course they did, because they were the college group. Uh, and we got assigned France. And my teacher had two recommendations. I want you to be knowledgeable. I want you to study. I want you to truly understand global dynamics, what it's like to be French, what it's like to be France, what matters to them, what matters to Europe, all these types of things. And then he said, and while you're at it, be as French as possible. And so we, we pretty much went wee-wee and jumped right in into, into digging in. And we became so self-centric. And by the way, the people in France, I think, are delightful. I've had a chance to be there twice. They get a bad rap. Um, but we became so about us uh, when we were doing this that, that we started looking at everything that was out there, whether it was nuclear arms deals and, and relationships between uh, India and Pakistan. I remember it was a big thing that we had to talk about. Where do we fit into their dynamic as peacemakers? Because they were, they were at the time in the, in the mid-90s armoring up. Uh, and then you had even Russia and Ukraine was a big thing. Even then, you just knew the dynamic mattered uh, and, how it was, and how it was dealt with. And so we're weighing all these things. We start to get this realization of, why do we rely so much, being French mindset, why do we rely so much on the Americans? And we started to think we could strengthen this idea of a European Union and maybe even go in and get the powers in Eurasia between Russia and Ukraine and pull these guys in. And so we got excited and we started doing those types of things in discussions. We'd have this chat board where we'd have formal discussions and then we could reach out to the other schools. So we reached out to England and we reached out to Spain and we reached out to Russia and we reached out to Ukraine. And this all culminated in the last day at Whittier College and while our formal delegates, we had our president and we had our official dignitaries, and I was part of the, the group that didn't get an official title for this exact purpose, no one was tracking us. So we were going around and we were pulling all the people we were having conversations with, with a formal idea of, let's strengthen, let's be a European Union. We have no need for NATO. We don't need to be beholden to anybody in, in, in North America, let's, let's break from that, let's do something. And it's getting traction, and, and everybody, what I loved is everybody was legitimate. They weren't just doing it because it was cheap and easy. You had to make your case. And so at the end of this, this thing at Whittier College when we all got up, our president gets up and he's just supposed to do a little recap about what NATO, uh, or what, what France has decided was interesting during this. And instead he invites all the other European leaders, including Russia and Ukraine up there, and they all hold hands and they all do the pose because we have disbanded NATO and we are now the European Union. And USC lost its mind. They were so mad at us. They were so mad that the thing ceased to exist after that. We were supposed to have follow-ups, they canceled the program, and from what I understood, it never happened again. We all got A's, because our teacher thought it was phenomenal. But we trashed a program, not only for our group, but for the next class and the next class, because we were so about us. Like, at some point, there was a little bit of the, this would be fun. Like, let's, let's figure out how to disband NATO in this thing. Let's see what the reaction is. We didn't think about unity. We didn't think about dynamics. And we actually caused a disappointment for people following behind us because we didn't actually process the whole picture. We sort of made our truth, and we understood our truth, and we pursued that. 
And Acts 15 is the antithesis of that. Acts 15, we're going to get to look at this absolutely beautiful picture. This, this big picture thinking from the first set of apostles and elders who are guiding the church. And here's what I think Luke is really trying to get us to make sure that we see in this. Technology was slow this morning. Apparently it's a thing. There we go. The early church came together to wrestle with truth and unity, the whole picture, to ensure that the gospel superseded everything else. And the reality is, this was in 49 AD, the church hasn't stopped wrestling with this sense. So we're going to take a look at not only what they did in Acts 15, but we'll talk a little bit about today as we get going. So let's take a look at the text this morning. We're going to go 1 through 22. But some men came down from Judea, and they were teaching the brothers, unless you are circumcised according to the custom of Moses, you cannot be saved. So these are Jews who are coming. I'll give a little narrative while we're reading this. We'll read it once through. Uh, These are the Jews who are coming, going, God just did 1,500 years of things through our nation with a law and all these things that matter. And now you're telling us it's just over? That seems weird. And so it's actually, if you step back, you look like that's, that's a legitimate idea to consider from these guys. Like, they're, they have a point there as they're trying to figure this stuff out. What the new church looks like with Christ, what it means for the Jews, what it means for the Gentiles. And so after Paul and Barnabas had no small dissension and debate with them, Paul and Barnabas and some of the apostles were appointed to go to Jerusalem to the apostles and the elders about this question. So being sent on their way by the church, they passed through both Phoenicia and Samaria, describing in detail the conversion of the Gentiles and brought great joy to all the brothers. So the same stuff over the last couple, from Peter's vision to what Keith talked about last week with the first mission, there's a lot of great things happening through the Gentile community, and and they're celebrating it everywhere they go. And when they came to Jerusalem, they were welcomed by the church and the apostles and the elders, and then they declared all that God had done with them. But some believers who belonged to the party of the Pharisees rose up. So there are Pharisees who are now Christians. Rose up and said, it is necessary to circumcise them in order to keep the law of Moses. So the same thing, these same guys are in Jerusalem. The apostles and the, uh, in order to keep the law of Moses, the apostles and the elders were gathered together to consider this matter. And after there had been much debate, Peter stood up and said to them, brothers, You know that in the early days, God made a choice among you that by my mouth, the early days of the church when he says it, that by my mouth, the Gentiles should hear the word of the gospel and believe. And God, who knows the heart, bore witness to them by giving them the Holy Spirit just as he did to us. And he made no distinction between us and them, having cleansed their hearts by faith. Now, therefore, why are you putting God to the test by placing a yoke on the neck of the disciples that neither our fathers nor we have been able to bear? Peter's going, guys, the law didn't save us. We couldn't figure out how to make this work. And we have now learned as we believe in Christ that God had to send someone to save us. The law wasn't enough. Yet why are you trying to get people to uphold the law when we now have Jesus? You have to consider this. And all the assembly fell silent. And they listened to Barnabas and Paul as they related what signs and wonders God had done through them among the Gentiles. And after they finished speaking, James, that's the brother of Jesus, he is the big deal 
in Jerusalem. He is the head of the council. He is so revered for his godly walk and his understanding of how the church is going to work now, as well as how great of a Jew he was in upholding the law and living well. James is the guy. James replied, brothers, listen to me. Simeon, which is Peter's Jewish, a version of Peter's Hebrew name, so he's leaning into Peter's Hebrew roots. Simeon has related how God first visited the Gentiles to take them from a people for his name. And with this, the words of the prophets agree, just as it is written. Now he's going to quote here, Amos chapter 9, verses 11 and 12. After this, I will return, and I will rebuild the tent of, of David that has fallen. I will rebuild its ruins. I will restore it, that the remnant of mankind may seek the Lord, and all the Gentiles who are called by my name, says the Lord, who makes these things known from of old. Therefore, my judgment is that we should not trouble those of the Gentiles who turn to God, but we should write to them to abstain from the things polluted by idols, and from sexual immorality, and from what has been strangled, and from blood. For from ancient generations, Moses had in every city those who proclaim him, for he is read every Sabbath in the synagogues. Then it seemed good to the apostles and the elders with the whole church to choose men from among them and send them to Antioch, which is where they were coming from, where the first question came up, with Paul and Barnabas. Gracious Heavenly Father, as we unpack what you inspire Luke to capture from this experience, this Jerusalem council, help us to see you. Help us to see your heart. Help us to understand where we fit in to your big picture. In your name we pray. Amen. So, in this text, there is a ton of history and there is a ton of heart. So I want to talk about the history part of it first, just so we can see how this is a key moment in time where the model of what happened in the Jerusalem Council actually impacts us today. So I want to share how this looks. So the folks who are turning to the Bible, and now with so many denominations, you get modern day, you get a bunch of these councils and groups that are all meeting. At the beginning, there was primarily just the one church. And so they were getting together. Um, and so I, I, I pulled three things that, I, that I'd love for you to see, and then, one, and then one that's very relevant for us today, very direct. Um, the first of these councils that got together that, that, that I want to talk about is the Council of Nicaea. Um, you can see these guys were golden bronze when they met. Very clearly accurate picture. Uh, if you're not familiar with what came out of the Council of Nicaea, uh, it's the Nicene Creed. To this day, we uphold the Nicene Creed. It's actually something that's also read in Catholic churches, too. That's how universal this idea is. It's we believe in God, the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, all that is seen and unseen. And it goes in to talk about Jesus and the spirit and, and Jesus' life here. And it, it was the first time they got together um, with Emperor Constantine's support to actually codify what it meant to be a Christian. And we benefit from that now, 1,700 years later, we get a chance to benefit from them actually going, this is important that as the church is spreading, that we can actually sit down together and understand what does it actually mean? What is this universal church actually look like? The second one that impacts us a ton is uh, that is not the world's first fear factor expression. It is not the diet of worms. Uh, it was in Germany. It is pronounced worms. Huge difference, clearly. Um, at the time, the church was struggling 
The Catholic Church was very corrupt. They couldn't figure out how to handle it. So part of the promise they made within, within its ranks, even though there was corruption in all kinds of different ranks, was that they were going to get together consistently. And they called a lot of these things that they got together, they called them diets. So the Diet of Worms in 1521, uh, this is a picture of one of the, not the only reason they got together, but the key thing that showed up in all of this. That is Martin Luther, who's dressed as the San Diego Padre mascot. Uh, Martin Luther... This is where he was called in. His writings were out. The Reformation had some, had some take and some traction. And he was called in to do two things. One, to acknowledge these writings that challenged the church were truly his. And he said right away, 100%, those are mine. I wrote them. And then he was told, okay, now's your opportunity to renounce what you wrote for, for penalty of death. And he said, and I, I tried to figure out if I could memorize this and my aging, my starting to age brain isn't working so great. But he basically stood there, and I'll paraphrase it. He said, here I stand, and I cannot, in good conscience, between me and God, renounce what is happening. Renounce what I have seen. Renounce that I understand that the God of the Bible is not the God in the church that we see. And so we need, and so I cannot back off of this. And he somehow escaped death by God's hand. But man, the traction that the Reformation and the Protestant movement got from this was huge. So we get to celebrate this focus on the text and this removal from a corrupt, at the time, very corrupt Catholic system. And we are today what we are because of this moment from one of these councils. And the third one is uh, Westminster Assembly. To some level, as we get closer in time, it's a little more indirect, but there's two things that came out of this that do impact us a ton. The first is they got together uh, in Westminster Abbey. This is, this is over in England, and the Church of England is overseeing the church. And in that, uh, the, what was known as the Presbyterians, not for their point of faith, but because they believe in a localized government, step, came in, and they rallied really well. The Puritans were kind of the big movement that were really like pushing this. And they rallied, instead of being overseen by the Church of England, which is just like the Catholic Church overseeing the whole world and all the disconnects that came, they, they argued for why they should have a much closer local community expression that they understood their individual communities better and they should be allowed to govern their individual churches and their individual communities, which is exactly the structure that we benefit from today. We're part of the Evangelical Free Church of America and we get to, with our elders and our congregational votes at the annual meetings, we get to govern ourselves and understand not only within these walls what that looks like for our community, but how we impact our community beyond these walls. So we still get to benefit from that. The second piece that came from the Westminster Assembly was a thing called the Westminster Shorter Catechism. And it's a bunch of question and answers. We pose a question and then they put biblical text about how they, how they uh, found it, they ground it in the Bible. And the very first question of this entire Shorter Catechism is this, what is the chief end of man? To glorify God and enjoy him forever. You think there's a few folks from around here that would love hanging out with those guys 400 years ago? 400 years ago, when everything was still getting discussed about structure and how this works, and there were still challenges with corrupt churches, and they were trying to figure out who was, who was supposed to be leading the church and everything, they looked at the Bible, and they read it thoroughly, and the best theologians come around in England at the time, and they came back with, God wants us to enjoy him. That there should be joy in this process. It's not a list of rules. It's not a list of to-dos. It's not about shame but it is about to glorify God and enjoy the process of glorifying God. How cool is that, that 400 years, I told my wife about this, and she goes, wait, 400 years ago they figured this out? 
There's a thing when, when you're in seminary, one of the first things that they teach you is if somebody has a new theory within the last, like, 50 years that no one's ever figured out in the church, chances are don't trust it. Because there have been so many amazing brains over 2,000 years who have put the thought and the depth and the heart into this that so much has been uncovered. Um, so, yeah, next time you read something that comes up, like, just, or I'm not saying, like, they're not 100% wrong. Like, there's a chance that there could be something in there that has some value, but, but be a little more skeptical than, I can't believe nobody ever figured out that we're not supposed to eat pork. Um, <laughs> And if you haven't looked yet, in your worship folder, uh, we put what, what matters to us now. Uh, the EFCA that we belong to gets together at least once a year, and they have councils. And what we put in there was our statement of faith. We are a member of the EFCA because we adhere to this statement of faith. So a chance for you guys to read that later. I didn't want to go through that whole thing. It would have taken the entire sermon. I got lots of other things I want to talk about. Uh, but they get together, and they talk about this, and they refine it, too. They talk about what matters and things. So they, they have a balance of wrestling with, tra with the tradition of the church and the history of the church. And in fact, the date that's on there, June 2019, it was refined because some of the history, uh, there, there was a big focus on the details about when Jesus is going to come back. And so there was the word premillennial that was put, I think it's section 9 in there. Um, and it was removed in June because they finally realized that it was more about the tradition and that when you really dig into the Bible, it's not something that is so explicit, nor does it actually truly impact whether or not we're saved, that they backed off of it and they actually took that language out. And so they affirmed it. And then we, in our annual meeting, affirmed that we were going to uphold um, that, that, uh, this new updated version, which for the record, we actually sent a guy to the council years before to say that we thought that it was exactly what they came to the conclusion on. So I wasn't here, I wasn't on staff, so I won't put my ego into that, but we have some egos here who are like, yeah, we did. Um, they're all wonderful people, the people who were involved at the time. Uh, okay, so that's the history, right? There's your, there's your quick, hopefully quick, church history lesson. So now, the heart, the heart of this. Here's what Luke is trying to get us to see. And man, when I stared at this thing like a piece of art and it finally hit me of like, oh, look at the, look at the beauty, like the subtleties of things that people with a trained eye for art, when they see the little strokes and whatever it is, I was looking at this text and I was going, so much function, like you can see all of this, it's easy to get caught up in the form of what it is. And then it finally struck me when I was looking at it. Luke's trying to get us to see that the early church leaned into their big view of God to seek truth and unity. How do we actually get to see that? We get to see it in the two speeches. You know, we've been in this, this piece, if you've been reading along in Acts on your own or, or just tracking on Sundays, you see Luke has gotten in this place where he loves tracking what the guys got up to say, whether it's Peter or Paul or Barnabas or James. He keeps, like, giving these speeches, and they're all little, Keith had two of them last week, where one was the gospel to the Jews and the other was the gospel to the Gentiles. And he loves capturing this, but they can kind of start to blur together a little bit when you're reading them all. Oh, here comes another speech. Um, but the subtleties in these are so fascinating. And this one in particular, just, I was awestruck when I was looking at this. Their big view of God pursued God's revealed truth. And so this group got together and they knew what it was like to actually hear God's word. To actually assess what was from God and what wasn't. And they had two sources to basically do it. It's the apostles and the OT. And the apostles are represented by Peter's speech. Now, I've got pretty blue in here. I've added colors. What I've highlighted when we look at this, all the times Peter, in this relatively short speech, points to God 
and actually says God or he, and everything black and underlined is an action from God that they believe is God and God's sovereignty and has nothing to do with them. It wasn't that they were involved. It wasn't something that they put down on paper that this comes from God. So Peter stood up, verse 7, Peter stood up and said to them, Brothers, you know that in the early days God made a choice among you, that by my mouth the Gentiles should hear the word of the gospel and believe, and God, who knows the heart, bore witness to them by giving them the Holy Spirit just as he did to us. And he made no distinction. This is God's plan. This is not us making this up. God is revealing to us that he has decided this is the way that it works between us and them having cleansed their hearts by faith. Now, therefore, why are you putting God to the test? Even when he turns it back to the group, he goes, look at yourself in reference to God. It's our giant God, and it's you guys. This is the challenge that we have, that we're working through. This is what we're wrestling with. And by doing this, you're placing a yoke on the neck of the disciples that neither our fathers nor we have been able to bear. But we believe that we will be saved through the grace of the Lord Jesus, just as they will. Peter got up and he said, God, 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 God. Not Peter thinks, here's the answer to the solution. We have a problem. Let me, let me go back into my, my files and figure out how I'm going to solve it. He says, we know from God. They have such a huge view that this is what they lean into. They very clearly, they don't want to hear what guys have to say about it. They want to hear what their God has to say about it. And Peter, in case you don't know Peter, he's got a little bit of an in for understanding this stuff between inside Jesus' inner circle and he just got a vision about how this is going to work from God. And then God has Cornelius show up to, to certify, hey, this is what I'm trying to get you to see, that the Gentiles actually have their own path and are fully welcomed and embraced now. It's beautiful to see Peter just so lean in to who God is here. And they had the OT as well. They didn't get the full Bible at this point. Much of the New Testament isn't really in writing at 49 AD or it hasn't gotten circulation yet. So they're leaning heavily into that. And this is where James goes. James replies, brothers, listen to me. Simeon first related how God first visited. He does the same thing. The Gentiles to take them from a, for a people... Uh, Take from them a people for his name. And with this, the words of the prophets, another mouthpiece for God. The prophets were there to illuminate or sometimes even speak directly on behalf of God and what they captured in writing. And so here, he turns to the book of Amos, verse 16. This is the voice of God in this prophecy. What it's coming out of, you should probably get a little context too, what it's coming out of is the Jews and the, and the Babylonians coming in and dispersing the Jews and they have been beat up and they are just torn apart and they are a mess and they feel like there is zero hope happening. And here at the end of Amos in chapter nine, God speaks and he says, I know it's been tough, but I am purging all the Jews from this nation who do not worship me, who do not treasure me, who do not understand the big God that I am. And he says, after this, I, God, will return, and I will rebuild the tent of David that has fallen, and I will rebuild its ruins, and I will restore it, that the remnant of mankind may seek the Lord, and all the Gentiles who are called by my name, says the Lord, who makes these things known from of old. Now, there was one phase when he brought all the Jews back in, 
where this is a prophecy that kind of got fulfilled, but not in its completeness. And James, in understanding what's happening here, realizes now we're seeing the true fulfillment of this prophecy in Amos, that the world is coming together because God has pointed us to this. We now see, we can look back at the OT, and we can see the fullness of Christ's influence and God's plan in all of this. And now we get to enjoy and celebrate this union of these two paths, God's chosen people and the Jews, and now God's chosen Gentiles, and how these are merging together to find the one church. And then he says, I love, I love the conclusion. So, he's li- so everybody's listened to Peter, and he acknowledges Peter, and then he goes to the Old Testament. And his summary, when he looks at how big God is and God's plan and everything, he says, therefore, now that we've stepped back and we've looked at who God is, and we've looked at those who are living godly lives that we can lean into and we trust that they're the mouthpiece of God, therefore, my judgment is. The thoughtfulness and the view of this gigantic God that was involved in getting to this moment is so amazing here. Another key piece of this, not just getting to the truth, but that you see the reverence for who God is baked into their response. Luke captures things that could be pretty subtle, but when you step back and you look at it, you see God moving in this, and it's because these guys have had their lives changed and they're so leaning in to the giant sovereign God here that they see it in their pursuit of unity. There's a very passionate, he captures directly, there's a very passionate but healthy debate. In verse 6, after, after they get to Jerusalem and the Pharisees say, hey, you got to circumcise these guys. They have to go through the path of Judaism to become part of it because God has established this. This council actually gets together. The apostles and the elders are gathered together to consider this matter. They didn't just blow them off. They didn't just tell them it didn't matter. They didn't just tell them, ah, that's the old thing. Go away. They actually sat down and, and pulled everybody together for a thoughtful discussion to, dis- to discern what God had in mind here. And after there had been much debate, so lots of folks getting up on both sides, talking it through, trying to figure out what it is. I love that Peter gets up before his speech, and the first thing is he reminds them of the unity of the early church. He says, brothers, after much debate, we've all seen debates lately, right? There's not a lot of civility it feels like anymore. I grew up in a house that I used to call the Fox News house. It was whoever spoke the loudest and finished last won. It didn't matter what you said, because at the time, back in the 80s, 90s, this is what it was. It was Bill O'Reilly would just yell over people until they stopped, and then he won. He won the argument. That was my observation of growing up and with Fox News going on. Instead, he unifies them. He could have just as easily gone, y'all don't get it. I'm Peter. I'm going to tell you what's up right now. He goes, guys, this is so crucial for us right now. And Peter finishes, and Luke captures again. He finishes talking about, we believe they will be saved through the grace of the Lord Jesus, just as they will. And all the assembly fell silent. The guys that came in, pushing back against this, wanting to know, what do we do with Judaism? Everyone could hear that this was truly God's plan that was happening between the voices and the Old Testament and the caliber of the people that we're discussing and the intensity to figure out what God's plan in this, there was a reverence within this debate 
that both sides felt it and they listened intently. How great would that be if we could have debates now at our highest levels where this would be the demeanor that would happen? Whether it's in our churches or our political system or whatever it is, this idea of who God is leading and guiding what's happening. And they put these two things together, the pursuit of unity and the pursuit of truth, and it comes to their conclusion. I'm going to break down the conclusion in three parts, but here's the big idea of the conclusion, that they came to the idea that nothing higher than sharing the true gospel through a healthy church. There is nothing higher than sharing the true gospel through a healthy church. If we're not unified, it speaks volumes to the outside world. If we don't have truth, it speaks volumes inside and outside if we're all over the place. And they found a way through the debate, not only to center on the truth, but to have unity in this. And so I'm gonna break down the conclusion in three different ways. The first is the actual section of the truth, that the Gentiles get a different path. Therefore, my judgment, said James, is that we should not trouble those of the Gentiles who turn to God. Simply put, the law is not for them. They are not beholden to anything. They do not need to be circumcised. Move on. They have a different path. Peter has established that. We're seeing the work. Peter's sharing the story of what the Spirit is doing in the Gentiles. Clearly, God is involved in this. And, and he's, drawn the, he's drawn the official theological idea and said, guys, this is where we're staying. They don't need to be part of the old Jewish system. But he has a but in there, and this is unity. This is the phenomenal way of James. James is just a master at keeping this, this expression of the full church together. He says, we should not trouble those of the Gentiles who turn to God, but we should go back to those guys in Antioch where this is happening, and we should write to them to abstain from things polluted by idols, from sexual immorality, from what has been strangled, and from blood. I know, those seem random, don't they? Sort of. Three of them involve food. Three of them involve the Jewish law and food. Dedicating food to idols. They're not supposed to have food that's strangled because blood is still inside from the Old Testament law. You're not supposed to have blood that's inside the animal. You're supposed to slit its throat and let all the blood come out. Sorry for the graphic thing. Um, and then, and then the, the second is the same idea. Um, and from blood. He adds in sexual morality in there because the Jewish culture has had the law and you have all the other cultures where they're starting to spread the gospel and they all have different backgrounds and what a monogamous relationship looks like and what does marriage look like and all these, all these things, whether it's worship moments to idols. All four of these pieces are things that the Jewish culture is kind of a further down the line on in understanding who God is and how it represents and so he's leaned into that to say, guys, here's some stuff that's a good idea for the sake of unity. Help your brother out. Show respect for them. And we know that because this blue section, 
he confirms by saying, For from ancient generations Moses has had in every city those who proclaim him, for he has read every Sabbath in the synagogues. Guys, there's Jews everywhere. Where the gospel is spreading, there are Jews everywhere. There are so many people who are going to come to faith right now. We don't have big churches up. We have synagogues. You're going to have people coming through here. You're going to, in the marketplace, run into Jews. Some of them have already become Christians. Some of them are now primed to become Christians and hear the message. And if you walk in with, I have a different path. I don't have to do those 613 things. I got it way easier than you do. Your smugness is going to break apart the church. These four things show respect for the unity of the church. So guys, be respectful because these are our brothers. We're going to grow this church together and we're going to do this together. And so that's James' point of view in the, the reception of it in verse 22. Then it seemed good to the apostles and the elders, the guys in power. Here's the part that I love again. Just as they all fell silent, everybody who came to this, those arguing for holding the law and continuing with the law, and those who said, no, the path to Gentiles is different, the whole church saw God's plan in this, saw who God was, saw the view of the church, felt the presence of the Holy Spirit in this process. And they all together agreed we should do this. We should take these ideas and we should choose men and send them to Antioch with Paul and Barnabas. Luke captures this absolutely stunning model of what it looks like to debate topics within the church, of what it looks like to be unified as God's body. So now when we look at modern day, when we look at what we can do, here's the encouragement. We can continue, we can continue try to say continue and lean together at the same time. We can continue to lean into a big view of God to seek truth and unity for the health of the church. And if we take a look at what's going on in the church, these are headlines that I think are even making it outside the church world that are getting picked up in bigger circles. Southern Baptists say no to women. Pastors uphold the expulsion of Saddleback Megachurch. That happened recently. Presbyterian Church in America leaves National Association of Evangelicals. National Association of Evangelicals is considered on the liberal side, um, much more on the gay-affirming type side, and the Presbyterian Church walked away from it and said, you guys are theologically off the mark, and they couldn't come to a place where they would actually see or hear what the, tr what the truth was. They weren't pursuing it, and so they just split, because it's easier. United Methodists lose 1,800 churches and split over LGBT stance. Churches are just splitting because it's easier. So if you're not part of a church, if you're not sitting in there, I sometimes call this stuff fantasy pastor. When I get asked, like, do you know this guy? Do you, have you done this? Have you watched this series? Do you watch this guy streaming? Do you understand all these subtleties of all these church discussions going on? I could say, like, I don't play a ton of fantasy pastor. Um, I, don't, I don't know a lot of that stuff, so get me up to speed, please. But these are things that have even caught my attention. Um, we're mirroring the discourse that's happening in the world or the lack of positive discourse that's happening in the world. We're splitting into the outside world, a church not unified. What do we actually believe in when we can't figure out how to find the truth of God? Now, there are wonderful churches out there. Let me be clear. There are wonderful churches out there who are unified and who get this. And there are denominations who are unified and who get this. This isn't, I'm not trying to say everybody's totally screwed it up. But if you took a temperature check for people inside and outside the church, Acts 15 probably feels more rare 
than how things are happening right now. And it's heartbreaking. So what do we do about it? Well, I think first we have to assess the situation. The reality is, is I think the situation is exactly the same as it has always been. If you, if you look through Acts, if you look through Paul's letters to the early church, if you look through James and Peter and, and everybody who's, who's trying to capture the essence of the early church, there's basically two factors that keep pressing on who the church is. The one on the left, I guess that's your, yeah, that's your left, that's my right. Response to the imperfections for smaller things and failures for major things of the church. People who have grown up inside the church and they want to see a big God, but the broken human mistakes that have happened, full-blown church physical sexual abuse, people just getting their feelings hurt inside a church and all the points in between, the people want to be part of the church, but they don't know where to fit in because they've just had a miserable experience from the tone from the tenor, from the way that people carry themselves within a church. And that's a factor that's just from the beginning. You, we went through 1 Corinthians, what, two years ago? I've lost all track of time. Um, Paul's whole letter is about this. The church is a mess. He walks away from Corinth and the church doesn't know what to do because they can't figure out how to handle what happens inside the church versus what's outside the church and what's actually God's. And then the other side is outside culture's influence on the church. It does feel like maybe this is unique to us, that outside culture has a little more of an influence into how people are perceiving the church right now. But as we're working through, what do we do about this? Man, we're just seeing at, at the highest levels, these issues, we hear about it all the time at the local level, church splits and things. Uh, Bethlehem Church in, in Pennsylvania, which is where, uh, Pennsylvania or Minnesota, Johnny Gino, Piper's Church, I always thought it was Minnesota, it was where he's from, but I think it's based in Pennsylvania. Uh, they just had three pastors resign from toxic culture. They couldn't get along with the elder board. And the top three guys, one generation removed from, from a guy who gets this. Piper opens his book, Desiring God, with that Westminster Catechism statement. This is a guy who has it, and already, just like Paul experienced after he planted a church, it's a mess. Now, most of us won't be at the top levels, won't go and argue on behalf of the church, won't go and do something big in that sense. But here's what we can do at an individual level. We can lean in to the big view of God in Acts 15. Each of us individually can step back and take a look at how big is my God and what does that actually do to influence my life? And so I was pondering this this week, and, and, I, and I capture what I think is a little bit of a flow, and they feel like they kind of build out of each other. But what does it mean to have a big view of a big God today? If we were to assess our lives individually, what might we actually see about the influence of who we see God to be in our lives? And the first one is this, that we embrace a complete view of God, even the parts that make our brains hurt. For me, when I was first coming to faith, I had to wrap my head around the fact that God was both loving and just. If God is purely loving, why does there ever have to be any reason for him to send someone to hell? And it hurt my brain to figure this out. I actually grew up, for me in particular, I grew up on the other side. I had a fear-based view of God, so I totally got the hell thing. I didn't understand actually where God's love fit into it. I had to process this and wrestle with it. I had to wrestle with how incomprehensible God truly is that anything that I've experienced about God 
isn't actually the depth of who God is. That even what I know about God's love here and, and expressed by any of you guys, as you so wonderfully do, still is such a fragment because of the broken world of what God's love actually looks like. And that there's things about God that I'm never going to wrap my head around until I actually get to be in the presence of him. And the one that I, I think we all wrestle with, and I know how clearly I did, is God's sovereignty. How is God in charge and things go wrong? Especially for me. I don't know about you guys, but I'm focused on me. I wanted to know why things were going wrong in my life, why it wasn't working out. How is God actually in control when I'm trying to pursue him and grow in him and things aren't working out the way that I wanted them to work out? And it hurt my brain while I'm sitting in the Bible and I'm reading all these things about him and I'm trying to figure out how it actually fits together. And I think when we're willing to do this, when we're willing to wrestle, that's where we finally get the breakthrough. We see everything connected in him. And by everything, I mean everything connected in him. There is no topic, there is no relationship, there is no circumstance, there is no situation in which God isn't in there. And he isn't trying to get us to see him. It's so easy to compartmentalize our lives. It's where I came from. When I went back to church, church was a Sunday thing, and then I went back and I did whatever I needed to do in my job to make a paycheck and get ahead. And then that started to creep in, and I started to actually see God in my choices that I was making in my professional career. I had to go, ooh, I didn't love some of my past ones. And I don't love that my initial reaction is, ooh, but that will get me the promotion. Ooh, but that will get me the bonus. I actually had to wrestle with that. And I had to see God in everything. And when that's the case, we start to see ourselves in relation to him. The same thing that these guys in Acts 15 got. That this is God and this is me. I grew up probably like this. And then I hit my late teens, early 20s, and I'd say it was probably more like this. This is me. This is God. I'm, like, he, he's a great little buddy to turn to every once in a while if something goes wrong. And then as I started to come to faith, man, God's so big. I can't even begin to fathom why he would love me because I am nowhere close to what he is, but he does. And that continued my journey of seeing a bigger God. And when we see ourselves in relationship to him and that humility comes in, we actually start to incorporate into our lives pondering and listening for his spirit, whether that's in prayer, whether that's in reading the Bible. We're looking for him. We're looking to grow. We're looking to understand him further. And in that time, when we're pondering him, we're thinking about him, we get these little pings here and here. Maybe you squirm in your chair a little bit. Called emotions. You start to see stuff. You start to go, ooh, mm, I don't like what that makes me feel. And instead of going, close the Bible, walk away, God, you're wrong, we go, Maybe this is telling me something about me. I like to think about it a little bit in terms of math. 
that God is the constant and I am the variable. I'm the thing changing. God doesn't change. So when I'm having an emotion that I don't like this or I don't want to follow that or that makes me uncomfortable, it's not me going, God, how did God not get this? I get it. It's super clear. No, it's me. I'm the one. And when we start to get a sense of who we are when we're having disagreements with people, whether they're inside the church about stuff or outside the church about stuff, we get a graciousness for him because we've now seen ourselves in perspective of God. We have a God who's so big that even though this conversation isn't going great, even though I may not get the win, I can't like check the box and go, man, I crushed that conversation. I won that debate. We still have a gentleness about us. We see the importance of the relationship still happening. There's lots of things inside a church that can impact us, right? You might like blue, I might like orange. You might like loud, I might like quiet. There's lots of little things that can get us to disagree. There's lots of big things that we might disagree on too. But when we see God for who he is, like the guys in Acts 15, the conversation and the tone and the tenor of it changes. And we find a peace, even when there's disagreement, that allows us to keep working for the unity, to keep working for the truth. And to get to that truth, too, we lean in to the truth of God that is revealed in his word. And we embrace it, even when it might mean that we're wrong. I had a whole lot of this when I was coming to faith. See, I was around Catholic school, and I had built up enough about God, especially my fear-based God, put all these pieces together and I had made them, but I had never really sat down and worked through the Bible to develop this. I was making my own God. And when I finally got here and I got encouraged to join a life group and I got encouraged to actually read the word and I got encouraged to actually ask questions, Mike Boblet, there was a whole lot of self-check there and I went, man, I'm the one who's wrong here. I don't like being wrong. I didn't take being wrong well, but it became freeing that I actually had this thing to point to that was the constant, that I didn't have to worry about where I was going to be or my development for where I was going to go. Now, this is all happening when I'm in my early 30s, so I've been been in the world a little bit more. I've gotten experienced a little bit more. I've been kicked in the teeth by the world. I've learned that that my opinions change. And I got to sit back and go, hey, I might be wrong, but now I know what's right. And it grew that view of God even more, which led me to hear. I think the biggest piece is we get excited. We genuinely enjoy him forever, and we get excited about growing that big view of God. That there's not enough, we get hungry for it, we get greedy for it, we crave just that little more. Show me just a little bit more, God. Give me just a little bit more when I, when I can process the world just a little bit differently. I can find that much more peace and I know that it is anchored in the truth and the reality of you being sovereign and above all else. And this last week, wondering what's going to happen with Bonnie. All of us as a staff processing this guy we love, what's, what's going on with his medical condition? What does this mean for the future? What's happening with his family? 
to be able to do that alongside a staff that has a big picture of God, a really big picture of a really big God, brought us so much peace. The concern level never went down. Our hearts ache, and we so want him back here and want him healthy. But to have that lens that God is in control and to see that even in this, God is using this for Bonnie, for his family, for us, a little bit of an odd week in that sense that we collectively all got to kind of do this. We haven't had, I was trying to think about it, we haven't had that as a staff. I know before I came on, Dennis Griggs, when he was on staff, uh, had cancer. And this is, I, this is even before RCC, before I, was, before I was at RCC, so I think it's pushing 20 years ago. Like, I think our, our staff has been blessed with health for the most part, so we haven't had to, had to kind of sit there and process this scenario together. This is an interesting thing that we don't really have a lot of precedence for doing this. And God has blessed us that we, haven't had to, that we haven't had to wrestle too much with this. But to be able to look at our perspective of God and then get to observe these other wonderful guys and gals around me on staff. To see that bigger picture. I think that is the apex of what it looks like to have a big picture of a big God. Is that we just want more of it. We want the truth. When there's debate, we work through it and we figure it out and we get to have it together. And so I have a hope for RCC. That each of us individually would lean into, I don't know where you're at in your process with God. You may be, this may be your first time to church ever. You may have been doing this for a while. But this hope would be grounded in a big view of God, a desire to get a big view of God. No matter how big your view of God is, you can get a bigger view of a bigger God. That's the beauty of who we have. And that we'd see that there is nothing higher than sharing the true gospel as a healthy, unstoppable church. Now the band's walking up because we're going to do communion today. We're going to celebrate that we have a big God and that he has given us a reminder to enjoy communion together as a representation of what we share in unity about our faith. So I'm going to have you come up. Don't take the elements yet. Go back to your seats with them. But in this process, as you come up to get, ponder that giant God. Celebrate a moment that you've had in your life where you have gone, God, you are so big. I can't even wrap my head around it, and I love it. Or if you're wrestling with God, where are you in this? What are you thinking in this? It's okay. Ponder that. Ponder the fact that there is a big God and you're, you're just putting yourself in a position to want to receive that. So come on up and come on up and grab the elements.
stand together. Let's stand together and sing, Oh, what a Savior. Oh, what a Savior. Isn't he wonderful? Sing hallelujah. Christ is had a plan that made no sense. He could have done anything that he wanted to do to reconcile us with him. And he chose to send his son who gave us a remembrance of the sacrifice that had to be paid for our sin. Only this big act would satisfy what was needed for our big God. And so we take this Remembering not only is he just, but he also was our justifier and gave us a solution. And during the Last Supper, Jesus lifted up a cup and he lifted it up as a remem remembrance of this covenant, that God had a plan and a promise that he will fulfill that we will be reunited with him, enjoying his presence once again because of his son. And so we drink this cup as a reminder that God is faithful to his promise that when we trust in Jesus, we will be saved.
we actually have the ability to impact how the church looks to the outside world, and that is glorifying God and enjoying him forever. If you ever had a chance to read this, it's a little bit of a tough read sometimes. Um, Knowledge of the Holy by A.W. Tozer. When I read this about eight years ago, this stood out to me, and I've just cherished it since. We do the greatest service to the next generation of Christians by passing on to them undimmed and undiminished the noble concept. This was supposed to be a beat. The noble concept of God, which we received from our Hebrew and Christian fathers of generations past. The fact that we are all here is because the God of the universe loves us dearly and desperately. And we have a chance to be his church, undiminished, a shining light that the world does not know what to do with it. So this week, share what you have, but this week in particular, ponder him, cherish him. He is huge and he loves us and those two things shouldn't fit together, but they do. And get out of here and enjoy Sunday. <laughs>